Welcome to EdTech Examined, a series about educational technology and what you need to know. I'm Eric Christensen. And I'm Chris Hans. Welcome to another episode of EdTech Examined. Good afternoon, Chris, on this fine, fine Friday. I just saw you yesterday, but how was your day today? Pretty good. Yeah. It hasn't snowed yet, so... Looks like all the snow is melted, but I hear we're getting another snowfall. Oh, really? Oh, that's disappointing. Well, you, know, you never know. This is Calgary, so it might change. Yeah. Well, that's okay. Um, I suppose we have kind of a hardware-heavy episode today. Uh, should we just dive uh, right into the announcements from Microsoft and kind of work our way through it? Sure. Let's okay. do it. Okay. So in earlier this month... So, um, or sorry, in October, I suppose, uh, or yeah, October 12th or 11th or something, we didn't quite get it covered for our last episode, but Microsoft did kind of a video announcement. So thanks to COVID, now all these product announcements are no longer these in-person things. I think they're, they're releasing a lot of videos and such, which I, in my opinion, is better because I can go back and, and rewatch them and take a look, which I appreciate. But so Microsoft yeah. finally updated the Surface line. And we had said before that we were going to come back to this because we didn't do, um, we didn't have a lot to say for back to school tech and recommendations. The reason being that, you know, some of these products uh, hadn't really been released yet. And the, uh, the updates often happen uh, well into the fall semester or term yeah. for us, right? So. Uh, Microsoft announced a Surface Pro 9, so that's their two-in-one uh, tablet laptop, a Surface Laptop 5, and the Surface Studio 2 Plus, which is a strange, strange product. So uh, this may be of use for, um, for folks who are interested in a Windows laptop, though I have heard from many folks in who cover the industry of Microsoft that while they like the Surface devices from a design perspective, I've, I have heard that they have a surprisingly high hardware failure rate compared to Dell, Lenovo, and stuff like that. So I'm, I'm, I'm not going to say don't get one, but I'm not going to recommend one either, uh, partly because I don't know. I haven't seen the full reviews of these. Uh, but Paul Thorat, who's been covering Windows for a long time, uh, wrote on his blog. He kind of does a nice overview of the of the new devices. So the Surface Pro Nine is probably the best of the updates. It you know it has uh, you know the typical twenty eight eighty by nineteen twenty display. I think it. Ref I don't know if it refreshed this fast before, but it, it'll do one hundred and twenty hertz refresh rate, kind of like the iPad Pro. So it has that very smooth look. So that is that is a good update. Mm -hmm. Um, it can be configured up to 32 gigabytes of Ram and a terabyte of storage. Um, they say 15 and a half hours of battery life, but I've heard from the reviews, it's nowhere near that, uh, two USB-C ports, uh, USB, uh, 4.0 Thunderbolt port. You can get them with 5G. Uh, if you purchase, I think the 5G model is, uh, with the non-Intel configuration. So there's, it's interesting. So uh, Microsoft had introduced that with a while back called the Surface Pro X. 
which was a very new design. Um, but it was running an ARM processor, like a phone processor from Qualcomm. And then the Intel surfaces were kind of the old design. So they've merged the two together, but now you can just choose the uh, processor type. Uh, as far as I understand, especially from an educator and a student perspective, if you're interested in new hardware, I, especially hardware that you can draw on that you can annotate with a, a Surface Pen, and that's something that uh, Microsoft really excels at, I think you have to go with an Intel model. My understanding is that Windows on ARM processors or doesn't work. Like it's just not there, super slow. Um, so that's kind of a nice update. There was also a similar update from the Surface Laptop. So they have the Surface Laptop 5. That's like a clamshell traditional laptop. Again, 12th generation Intel processors. There's a little bit more of a standard configuration. Um, looks pretty good. They come in a variety of colors. And then the Surface Studio 2 Plus, which is kind of their desktop. It almost looks like a Mac mini with a huge monitor on top of it. And it's like a huge touchscreen. Almost looks like a digital yeah. drafting table. That hasn't been updated for years. I think the last release was like 2018 and it just sat. And so they updated it with, uh, they did the most minor update they could possibly do, which is they put in not even the latest generation of Intel processors. They put in the last generation, the 11th gen. Uh, so a very, very minor spec bump and then they're charged and then they're they start at $44.99 US. So it's a very expensive. <laughs> no, not for our audience, probably not a useful, a useful device. So that I guess the devices that are um, most useful to our audience would be the Surface Laptop or the Surface Pro. I'm not sure what your take is on this. I, I haven't played with the Surface. I would love to be uh, have the cred of a tech blogger to get reviews on this. And so I could play with it, even if I had to send it back. I don't know what your opinion is on a clamshell versus the Surface. I always preferred the Surface. It seemed like a more flexible device, like the two-in-one the, with the kickstand. Yeah, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I from what I've seen, like I've had clients who have uh, had the Surface, both uh, the the flexible, just the Surface, and then the uh, Surface laptop. And I mean, they look great. I mean, the, I would say that they're comparable to... Uh, from an industrial design perspective to what Apple is producing and uh, even uh, probably the, some of the higher end um, computers out there, like maybe the uh, HP NV, um, you know, I mean, it, it looks really nice. I, I don't know about like uh, this failure rate kind of thing is it's interesting. I wouldn't be surprised because again, you know, Microsoft, this was their return into hardware. So um uh, you know, it's uh, especially when that isn't your core competency and expertise, it, it is uh, quite a bit of uh, a steep learning curve to get back into it, right? Yeah, and I think if you're going to purchase one of these and you really like it and it suits you, maybe this is a good reason to have the Microsoft extended warranty. I think they do a pretty good job of it, like Apple Care, um, especially if you're carrying it around. Uh, you know, it's interesting, Chris. I, I was thinking about this. So I started my graduate studies in 2012. 2012, mm -hmm. that fall, I believe, or that summer, but I'm pretty sure the fall was the first year that Microsoft launched the Surface. It was called the Surface. They had two. They had the Surface Pro, which at that time was like two inches thick. 
And then the, but the one that they thought they were going to sell was the Surface RT, which was like a phone processor device that was running Windows 8, which was super controversial. It had a keyboard. It had a kickstand that could only go into a couple of positions. It wasn't infinitely uh, adjustable. And uh, it was a huge failure. But it's to their credit, they really stuck with this. And they did two, three, and all the way up to Surface Pro 9. So, I mean, I think... Uh, I don't think the the hardware is failing, like the screens are failing, the keyboards are failing. I think it's more like, you know, maybe there's a higher percentage of surfaces that have like a bad solder in the motherboard and it's shorting out things like that, right? Like it just, I think the, yeah. I think the manufacturing quality control isn't there. And I think that's because they're not a huge producer. So when yeah. they put in an order to a company, they're kind of low on the list in terms of manufacturing because, you know, they're not, you're not taking up much of the production pipeline. So I, I don't think it's a, maybe a, maybe I should revise. It's not necessarily a bad purchase. They're just, but they are quite expensive and there's other two in one yeah. equivalents from Lenovo and other stuff like that. So I don't know. It's hard for me to say, I personally love the surface devices. I think they're beautiful. And if I had money to burn and it didn't matter, I would totally buy one, but I'm by, again, I'm thinking of it. Like if you're going to use it for years and years, is it better off just to work with a Dell XPS, something that's really robust? It's hard for me to say. I don't know. Uh, Paul Thorat has written a, a lot about this. Um, and so I would, I would suggest that people go to Thorat.com, T-H-U-R-R-O-T-T dot com. And he talks about this. He'll probably put a review up at some point of the newest surfaces. He hasn't yet. But yeah, and we'll we'll include the link. I mean, I, I think the, especially you mentioned like the Surface Studio. I really don't see like, I mean, it looks cool, but for forty five hundred US, that's it's, uh, super expensive. Like, yeah, I mean, I I don't even know what the the value proposition is there for. I mean, maybe if you're like into architecture or something, and you want like a huge screen and. But yeah, I mean, uh, there's only so many people that would be able to buy it. Or maybe if you're like into graphic design or, yeah. or something. And I think the problem too with the Surface is also very similar. All the Surfaces is very similar to Apple. Um, you know, the entry-level computer is really there to demonstrate a certain price point. But if you intend to keep your device for a long time, 8 gigabytes of RAM, especially on the Windows side, is not sufficient. You really have to get 16. You have to get a bigger hard drive. like. So the cost is quite high. So I mean, it's something yeah. for people to consider. But it, they did release new devices, which is exciting. Um, some people really want, like kind of like an Apple alternative in the Windows side, and that's probably the closest you can get. So it's certainly worth a consideration. Yeah, for sure. Um, Apple also released new hardware, which is useful for students. It's interesting. We had a discussion a while back. I remember I talked, I don't remember, but I said I, I was surprised about how many people have iPads in, in the class. Um, yeah. They're either using the desktop computers in the computer lab, plus they bring their iPad. Though I'm shocked about how many people who bring their, their MacBook Air, their MacBook Pro, plus their iPad, and they have it set up and they have their phone and they bring a keyboard. I'm thinking, you're carrying around $5,000 of equipment. How did you afford <laughs> to pay for this? That's my question. You must be doing really well. What is your secret? Um, but that being said, uh, the iPad is popular. And I, I think uh, this is probably the safer recommendations 
um, for people. So basically, Apple updated um, the iPad regular, which is now called the 10th generation, and they updated the iPad Pro. And the problem is, is that there's just some real weirdness with both models. And I can't, I don't know that I could honestly recommend them. So hear, mm-hmm. hear me out and maybe let me know if, what you think. Essentially, let's start with the, the 10th generation iPad. So before that, the ninth gen, which they still sell, which is the best deal, has a fingerprint reader design that's been around for a long time, supports the Apple Pencil, the first generation, the stylus, you have to plug it in. So it sticks out the side, like you're gonna break it. Not ideal, but it's a functional, useful tablet. The 10th generation basically looks like the iPad Pro. They went to a all no home button. Um, it doesn't use face ID or face facial recognition to log in. It uses uh, the fingerprint reader, just like the yep. iPad Air. And it has USB-C, but a couple of weird things. So it supports, uh, has a connector. So it supports Apple, Apple's new little folio keyboard that it designed for this iPad. So there's a back piece that's separate. And then there's a keyboard that connects and it, and it has an integrated trackpad. And apparently it's a really great typing experience, almost as good as that iPad pro keyboard, the floating one, right? Um, so it's a really great typing experience at a very low, relatively low cost. It's still quite expensive. Uh, that's cool. And as a result, because it's designed with that in mind, they moved the webcam to the top in horizontal position. So you can use it like a laptop webcam, which makes perfect sense. Yeah. So that's cool. The downside is that it has USB-C. It doesn't have a lightning port. And it uses the lightning port Apple Pencil. So you have to connect an adapter adapter. and plug it in. And apparently it's just a horrible experience. So rather than having like a a stylus stick charging on the side of the iPad sticking out, you basically have like a tail coming out of the iPad with this thing that you charge. And so that's weird. Uh, probably because they put the webcam on the top. That's where the magnetic charging would go. So they can't fit it there. They haven't figured it out yet. And so I think this, if you don't care about the Apple Pencil or if you only use it um, a little bit, I wouldn't let that dissuade you. This is a good computer or a good uh, iPad. Screen isn't as good, but it's good enough. So it has kind of checks all the bases. It's a good price. You may be better off actually with the ninth generation uh, from like Costco or a deal or something like that, just because it's so close in terms of specifications. It's This is an A14 chip versus like an A13 or something like that. And so I don't know that it's fast and fast, dramatically faster. It's more of a uh, a redesign of the chassis. But this is relevant to the iPad Pro. So keep in mind, so they've done this redesign of the iPad, right? It has this weird thing to connect the pencil, whatever, but at least it's set up with a keyboard. So if you want just an iPad with a keyboard, this is actually, and you're okay with the pencil the way it is, and you don't, or you maybe you don't need it. This is the way to go. However, the issue is the new iPad Pros are a very minor spec bump. So it goes from M1 to M2 processors. So it's 
exactly the same thing that you'll find in the MacBook Air. They did not move the webcam. So the iPad Pro keeps the webcam in horizontal view. I cannot imagine that that will not be changed in the next iteration. And from everything I've read, it's still just too expensive. It's a super expensive device. Um, has a lot of really pro features, faster display, but it's like, you know, 20% faster than the other one, which was already way faster than all the competition. So we're getting to the point where the speed here isn't ideal. And then you asked me earlier, oh, what about the iPad Air? Well, the iPad Air is great, but it's a year old. We recommend to buy Apple devices closer to when they release, unless you get a refurbished one or one that's on sale. And so here's where we have this problem. We have this iPad Pro that's like not really pro enough. It's very expensive. We have an iPad Air that's very close to the pro. Why does this exist anymore, this product? The iPad Air and the regular iPad are almost the same. Then you have this new iPad that comes in all these colors, but it has this weird setup. And then you have the ninth generation iPad. So there are so many iPad SKUs. It is super confusing. I think yeah. someone said that there was like 27 iPad SKUs now. Oh, well, wow. it's like, it's like ridiculous. So I don't know that as an iPad, if we can really, if I could really recommend any of these devices. Well, and I think like you're saying, uh, Eric, I mean, we discussed this before too, uh, just before starting this, but I mean, maybe if, if people really need a, a tablet or a laptop, maybe they might be better off going and, you know, getting like last year's on sale. Yes. Um, yeah. Like an M1 iPad Pro or an iPad Air that's in, and I would actually, what I would suggest people do if you're in the market for this, especially students where you can get um, an education discount. I don't think you get an additional education discount on refurbished, but sometimes that's still a better way to go. And, and iPads typically, and in Canada, they typically have a lot of, if you go down to the bottom of the Apple website and you go to refurbished and clearance, that might be a better place to go. And I think uh, last year's iPad Pro at a discount or the iPad Air as a refurbished model, uh, Costco often has these things on sale. Like I think yeah. the only iPad that I would purchase new, if you're okay with the weird charging setup would be the, the, the 10th gen. I think the webcam should be horizontal. I think the fact that it came out with a keyboard case, meaning that you have like a, a viable laptop replacement, especially if you have a desktop at home, or if you just want to use that plus, you know, the, the desktops at your university or something, I think that's actually a good solution, but these more expensive iPads are just not worth it. Like when you and I bought it, it made sense. There was like regular and the pro. And yeah. so like, I've been super happy with this and we have this. 2020 model um yeah and i can't i can't tell a huge difference so i think well and plus like you say like even this while they've changed this uh the camera to the the correct position but they haven't figured out like the whole pencil charging and everything it's almost like you know like a Frankenstein kind of iPad right now in, in between. Well, they haven't figured it out, but we need to get something out the door. So let's just do it. I mean, I, I'm not a big fan of uh, adapters. And that's that's one of the reasons why I waited so long to even, uh, you know, get a new MacBook. It was uh, just for, you know, I don't know. I didn't want to have a whole bunch of adapters or dongles or, you know, and so on. So, uh, um, yeah. Anyways, yeah. So I, I guess our recommendation is, 
if you can maybe either go with something else other like brands or, or what have you or some or maybe an older version yeah for now and so the hardware side is is kind of not super exciting um i i guess there was new um apple did release shortly after these were announced the new ipad os so ipad os 16 yep. and that that has some cool stuff. Maybe we could do a deep dive on that at some point, or maybe point to some other features. I haven't looked that closely at it, but it really there's stage manager. There's all these new multitasking features, which I think are absolute disaster. I was playing with them and it's just absolutely horrible. Um, so yeah, the iPad's in kind of a yeah. weird spot. Yeah. I mean, I have updated my uh, phone to the latest OS and I, I, I waited until they got to um because you know when they first come out with the original one there's always bugs to it so i waited until the next uh, like the point one or whatever point two i think it's at but i i did like some of the features like for instance uh, the medic medicine reminders that they have now built into health uh, i think especially for people who uh, might be taking medications and stuff that that would be really helpful and it's it's pretty cool how you can pick the shape of the tablet and you know so now you have like a visual cue to it yeah i also like the fact that you can edit your i messages <laughs> so that's uh, uh that's pretty cool where you can you have a certain period of time i think it might be like 15 minutes where you can still edit it yeah absolutely that's pretty sweet i like that because i used to just to send you messages with all sorts of errors and then i would just resend yeah. you stuff with like a asterisk beside it and so now I can just yeah, go in yeah, and exactly. edit it when I make sense, because often I dictate things and I just think it's funny, um, to watch Apple's dictation, mess it up. So I just leave it like that and I send it to people, but now I can go in and edit it later. What is our next thing that we should move on to? What about this, uh, article about, and what is, what about this business insider thing? Oh, you want to do the business insider? Well, yeah, I so I mean, might as well. um, that's a good, I don't know if there's much yeah, to say with the hardware side. Yeah, I mean, it, it was interesting because basically, you know, one of the the most well-regarded uh, venture capital firms uh, in Dreesen Horowitz, so they're they're still betting heavily on edtech for the next decade, and so uh, you know, kind of uh, supports what we've been talking about uh, in our predictions for the future. But you know, especially as we're coming out of the uh, COVID, um, you know. There are people who might be like worrying about, you know, going back to uh, pre-pandemic uh, kind of models, and uh, I think most people probably would be betting against that. And you know, now it's accelerated a lot of that adoption uh, with uh, technology uh, in the, the industry, and it is a big industry uh, that uh, is poised for growth. So um, you know, they they're just just reaffirming that they are uh, planning to go and uh, continue uh, for the next uh, decade or so. Yeah. So despite layoffs from these companies, education technology companies, they're saying that over the long run, it's a good investment. Like the dips that we're seeing right now, the layoffs in tech. I mean, that's partly because, you know, COVID was a bonanza for these companies. And now it's not as much of a bonanza, but the long term looks good. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, that, even this, this is just this is kind of like just what happens in business, right? Where people, when times are good and they have the funding and so on, they'll they'll go hire anybody, even if you have a heartbeat. And when when times and when the things get a little bit more 
realistic, they have to find ways to cut down on costs. And so one of the first easy kind of things is just, uh, you know, doing some layoffs and that person probably, who knows, maybe they shouldn't have been hired in the first place or that role shouldn't have been created in the first place, right? It's really interesting that you mentioned their big bet too, because there's all this focus on ed tech companies that are, are laying off, right? But at the same time, I don't see as many news articles talking about companies that are doing well. So for, uh, mm -hmm. for instance, uh, Udemy, and I'll send you this article. I apologize. I didn't send this to you before. This just occurred to me now that this isn't much, this is yeah. from Globe Newswire, but really this, the story is, is that they had really strong results. Like, I mean, Udemy had total revenue of like 22% year over year. I mean, mm -hmm. their, their, their business model, I don't think Coursera has done as well, even though they both went public. So I don't know what Udemy is doing mm -hmm. differently. As somebody who's an educator who is like, oh, that would be cool to make a course for our online platform. Um, well, I don't know. There's something about their business model that's 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 working, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, I don't know. I'd have to look at it closer. I don't know the ins and outs of why they're doing so great, but um, yeah, I mean, that's awesome if they are. And probably a lot of it is also, who knows, maybe it's their partnerships. I'm just looking at this uh, 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 press release that they have. That's, it's just interesting to me that some are up and some are down. And I'm kind of curious why, what business yeah. models are working and which aren't. It seems like the app ed tech companies aren't doing as well, but the online learning companies are doing better. Yeah, well, and, and the, uh, that's where like software as a service is, it's a tough, tough type of business, right? Especially you got to figure out that business model and having all these uh, licenses and paying by a subscriber, it, it does get kind of um, challenging in some cases. I mean, that's why I, I find it interesting. Like we've talked about Top Hat in the past, but you know, uh, one of the things that they basically did was flip the ability to go and put the cost on students, right? That was like one of their fundamental um, business model shifts. Because realistically, if you look at it, uh, you know, to sell to universities or post-secondary institutions, it's it's a long sales process, right? To yeah. go through all the various, uh, like the bureaucracy and uh, to get that uh, license for the institution. Whereas now, uh, and making it just a little bit more cheaper, you just pass on the cost to the students. Uh, and, you know, I've heard that they even have various packages of uh, per semester uh, for the students where they can go and use it in multiple courses. So mm, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty cool. What about this story from the Harvard Crimson? So it's titled an EdTech company bought edX from Harvard and MIT for 800 million. Its stock price has plummeted since. For I'm not as familiar with the history of edX. Could you know a little bit more about this than I do? What, what is that for people who don't know? Yeah, so this was, uh, I mean, I, I probably know maybe just a little, little bit more than you do, Eric, but it's, That's okay. uh, uh, I, I didn't even realize that MIT, I guess it was a joint, uh, you know, some sort of a joint venture or partnership where they launched it together. Uh, so Harvard and MIT got together in 2012. Uh, so it's been uh, 10 years and, uh, you know, developed a, a freely available open source platform, uh, you know, based on um, uh, just to go and deliver some of their awesome programming and so on, right? So um, 
Uh, but yeah, I mean, they exited after 10 years and the, you know, the MIT prof that actually co-founded it uh, is, uh, he, he actually works for uh, 2U, which was the company that uh, bought oh, them. Oh, I see. So um, he left asked, to 2U yeah, first asked, and then they bought them after? Well, no, I, I, I think uh, he basically joined uh, 2U uh, after the, the sale. You know, that's I typical, see. especially when you have... Um, when when you do have these kind of transactions i mean if something imagine if you bought it for 800 million you probably want some continuity right uh so typically the the senior management will probably have to work there for a certain period of time to go and uh help out and help with the uh the transition but um yeah i mean i i think a lot of this um uh who knows i mean it was hot during the time right like i mean the stock prices it's not uh, uh, there's a lot of different uh, things that come into play, right, for the stock side of things, because it's um, it's based on profitability, different metrics that analysts, investor analysts look at. Um, I mean, they probably, you know, this again, having the Harvard and MIT going and building this, uh, you have two of the biggest well-recognized names that uh, have uh, put this together, this platform. And so maybe in the long run, it'll be fine. But like, you know, like we talked about, even just this uh, Andreessen Horowitz um, article um, right now, it's not just education. There's just so many companies out there that are struggling, right? I mean, we're... Uh, some people are saying that we're uh, going to be in a recession this upcoming year. Um, you know, uh, I think the recession is pretty much here. So people have to start planning accordingly. And so that's where the, a lot of this uh, cost cutting comes into play, where you have layoffs and, um, you know, other um, uh, measures that people have to do to prepare for that. Interesting. Right? So interesting. Well, that's too bad. I'd be curious to see how it turns out for them. Yeah. Um, and this is where I think sometimes even, you know, when, when you are publicly traded, uh, you have to disclose everything, right? That's, you got to go and be transparent with your shareholders. And so it's, uh, uh, I, I don't know, I think there's, we'll probably see in the next upcoming years, uh, maybe more privately held companies as well, right? Where uh, you don't, um, and that one of the advantages is, is that you don't have to go and uh spend as much money on the lawyers and the accountants to go and do all those filings and reporting. Uh, and, you know, that way that you can actually keep your secret sauce internal and not disclose it to all your competitors and everybody in the industry. Interesting. Well, I guess that kind of dovetails into this article that we have from Inside Higher Ed, um, which is titled When to Outsource Online Learning and When Not To. So this is basically a um, article about a, a report that was written, um, by, I want to, I want to make sure I get the name, right. Jeffrey Sun, uh, distinguished university scholar at university of Louisville. I guess he's consulted regularly by his, uh, administration, um, about, you know, should we build our own online content? Or should the university outsource the building of that or the program development and management to an online program management company? And so I don't know that he, he's, it sounded like he didn't really have an answer. So what he did is that he wrote this report uh, with his colleague and they basically kind of did an analysis of 
you know, when should a university do things in-house versus, you know, uh, you know, when they should outsource to another company. And it sounded like, um, you know, people who do online learning or are in charge of online learning and higher education were more likely, and I'm quoting here, were more likely to consider working with an outside company because of three factors, speed, money, and marketing. So peer pressure played a key role, the report suggests, which describes the online leaders observing their competitors or institutional peers and hearing constant news about mega universities and feeling pressured to emulate the successes of these institutions, many of which had an elevated presence in online learning, offered several programs, program options, and provided direct and responsive student support in a short time frame. And so for FOMO, fear of being, or no, it's not, is it FOMO, fear of being left out, FOLO? I'm terrible at these. Basically, they don't want to be left Fear behind. Fear of missing out. Fear, Fear of, missing of missing out. out. So it's 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 FOMO. They didn't want to be left behind. So then historically they've gone uh on to hire these these external um uh program kind of development companies like they're basically outsourcing it. Yeah. And I mean this it's a it was an interesting article because I mean uh, this is like the age old question that uh, not just in education, just in any sector you you bring up whether do you should you do it in-house or should you outsource to people that are experts in the field, right? Uh, and it's it, there's pros and cons for e- either or. And I mean, even we were chatting about this right before, uh, uh, you know, there's huge companies. I mean, we think that even the largest companies out there, the most successful ones, they probably will have an in-house marketing team, but they still maybe collaborate with outside uh, experts, right? And uh, I think part of it is just that they provide you maybe a, a different perspective. And, um, uh, you know, whereas if you're working in that organization day in and day out, you might be kind of myopic and uh, in terms of your approach. It sounds, and it sounds like marketing and online recruitment were kind of like the big reasons that they, other two big reasons that they wanted to hire these OPMs because uh, they're just skills that the higher education institutions lack, even if they have the expertise to build the proper curriculum and they have the pedagogical knowledge. This is an issue in terms of, uh, yeah. you know, getting the name out there, right? Well, I've, I've seen this. I mean, uh, as I've, we've probably have talked about this, like I, but I look at my, my own, uh, company, a lot of times we are hired by educational institutions to go and execute on stuff because we can do it a lot faster, right? We have the expertise, we're more nimble. Uh, whereas, uh, you know, again, and there's nothing wrong with it, but a lot of times there's just a lot of um, bureaucracy that gets in the way and you need uh, a lot of um, stakeholder input to get things done. And so we've done it both ways. We've worked with uh, some of the you know, with those in, in-house teams. And then we've just been, you know, there's something that needs to be done really quickly and they just don't have the time and we get brought in. So uh, it's uh, it's interesting kind of, uh, you know, process. But uh, again, uh, you know, I think this is where I, I'll go back. I mean, I've worked in not-for-profit before, uh, personally. And uh, here we are, like, we're, you know, working in the education sector in various capacities. But I always say people in the not-for-profit sector, they're performing miracles every day. 
doing what they're doing because they're tapped for every conceivable resource from time to financial mm-hmm. to uh, just uh, you know physical any kind of resource that you can think of and so it's it's not easy man uh, and um and so uh this is where sometimes having that little bit of extra push or horsepower can certainly help yeah it's interesting it says in this report that these institutions are kind of like starting with that and then maybe weeding themselves off over time or building that expertise so perhaps it's like a transition for them it sounds like these companies take like a huge chunk of the tuition too right so then you have to consider how much money do you really make is it more for i guess branding for the face-to-face in the campus kind of like what i thought edx was for <laughs> for harvard <laughs> um yeah. or, or is the goal to become an online institution and to really excel online learning i mean those are those are different things right yeah absolutely that's pretty much what uh we had on our plate is there anything else that we want to chat about i don't think so i mean it's a. Uh... So we don't have any questions that have anybody's asked as of late, so I think we're we're good. No tech, tech kind of questions. I think it's just you know midterms, and we're all already almost past the halfway point in terms of the semester. So that's fair. The the lights at the end of the tunnel there. That's right. Well, that's a great discussion. I that's probably a good place to end it. So I'll I'll talk to you next time then. All right. Perfect. Take care. Thank you. You can learn more about EdTech Examined by going to our website, edtechexamined.com. There, you'll find ways to subscribe, as well as host information, our social media accounts, and our blog posts. Our blog posts are also published through Medium on the EdTech Examined publication. You can contact EdTech Examined by emailing us at hey at edtechexamined.com. If you have an EdTech question you'd like us to answer on a future episode, you can email us or reach us through Twitter using the hashtag EdTechOfficeHours. You can find EdTech Examined on Twitter and Instagram with the handle at EdTechExamined, and we also have a LinkedIn page you can follow. Until next time.